Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we have conversations about creativity and creative journeys. I'm CJ, and in this episode we're very lucky to talk with Jason Killingsworth, who is the founder and creative director of the book publisher Tune and Fairweather. He's also the co-author of the wonderful Dark Souls book, Dark Souls is a video game. It's called You Died, which is a, a, a magnificent artifact of the bookmaking craft. We're going to talk about that. And Jason previously served as the creative director in the European marketing department of Riot Games, who make League of Legends. Also worked as a magazine editor, journalist, and critic for over a decade, covering music, film, games. Sir, you have a, a wonderful, broad mind, and I'm really looking forward to this late night conversation of ours. Absolutely. I'm excited to get into it. Nice. Now, one of the things that we usually do as a as a way of starting ourselves off is we each just share something that we've that we've been enjoying recently, and you chose something that I hadn't seen, and then I went and watched this today. So I have opinions, and I'm looking forward oh, to talking about this. So, what is your thing that you've been enjoying? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So recently, I uh, I dived into a it's a documentary miniseries. I think it's three episodes uh, called Murder Among the Mormons, and so immediately, I think just based on the title, without any supplementary context, I would I'd be all over this, uh, you know, because you have the the archetype of the the buttoned up, you know, the almost like the Book of Mormon musical kind of silliness of the you know, just the straight laced uh, kind of you almost have the straight man persona that any kind of ridiculousness or it's it's ripe for comedy, it's ripe for drama. It almost sets itself up for that that kind of treatment, um, just because it's so squeaky clean and it's in the the way that it occupies, you know, our, that stereotype within our mind of of the squeaky clean Mormon. And so I was like, absolutely, yeah. So, but the this is definitely not the Book of Mormon. This is it's much more sinister because it's it's dealing with with actual. Um, you know, human lives that were that were taken by by somebody living in Salt Lake City, and again, this is where it gets tricky because I'm I'm not I just want to lay the whole thing bare and you know, post a spoiler alert and then just completely autopsy the whole thing top to top to bottom. But it it is a um, it, it figures a, a sort of a disillusioned um, person who grew up within the church who then. Uh, sort of finds their way into this area of historical artifacts and documents and is having just this incredible run of luck of, of unearthing some of these early early documents from the church that complicate um, you know some of the early historical details um, there's there's one particular document that I think is one of the the first major finds of his and it's called the salamander letter and and so instead of um, you know, there being this angel Moroni at the at the start that leads Joseph Smith to the golden plates, there's a white salamander that sort of slithers off into the woods and he follows it. So it has this folk magic kind of origin, which um, which the leaders of the church um, you know, became aware of pretty quickly and and were not entirely happy that there was this this alternate <laughs> alternate story, almost um, you know, sort of a, a fan fiction kind of version of the tale. Um, but that also becomes significant as as the plot unfolds. Absolutely. One of the things that I loved is, so again, I hadn't seen this documentary, which is on Netflix until today. I saw it in your show notes and I thought, I'm going to get caught up on that. And and I, I was sucked in. One of the things that's always interested me about the Latter-day Saints and the Mormons, obviously, is the idea that in theory, because their religion was founded in the 19th century, 
really almost within living memory, but they're not quite. And I hadn't realized just how much that that history is a living history to them. And they were absolutely fascinated with the idea that because there are a whole lot of extant diaries and letters and monuments and things that came from the 1820s, that there's this real passion for essentially rare book and rare manuscript collecting yeah. that relates to the founding of a religion, which which is crazy. And and obviously um, f- for some of the older religious traditions, the same thing occurs, but it's, it's very difficult. It's kind of Dead Sea Scrolls type territory. But this idea that, at least in theory, at least during the 80s, you could go into certain secondhand bookstores and you might actually find a fragment of a letter that related directly to the founding of your religion. And that this young guy um, becomes this, as you say, very lucky, very skilled, rare document collector and gets into the whole book trade, which I, which I found absolutely fascinating. And what I loved about that documentary, for me at least, was it starts off and you think, okay, this seems like it's a documentary about a guy who uncovers documents that are a challenge to an established religion, and that religion essentially squelches him. That's where you think it's going. Correct. And then it takes these twists, and it goes left, and it goes right, and maybe it's not about that at all. And there are there are bombings and murders and hilariously dodgy characters. Absolutely. I, I loved some of the people who showed up. It was, it was just wonderful fun. I, I know. I, I, that's that's one of the, the joys of watching it. You're, you almost wonder if these uh, some of the figures being interviewed, there's one guy who has his voice is quite, uh, you know, it's like an octave. It's like a falsetto. You almost wonder if he's had emphysema or, so, you know, something of the sort, and he's sort of wheezing, and, and he's wearing, he has like a monocle or sort of like a little stopwatch draped, you know, on a chain, and you're like, are these people for real? <laughs> um, but of course, he's, he's incredibly earnest, and he was, you know, Sort of working alongside the is it Mike Hoffman? I can't remember the uh, the I main think, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so he's the sort of person at the center of all this intrigue. But one of one of the people, his associates, you know, so recounting this and sort of dressed in almost like he's the the Dickensian version of a Renaissance fair kind of you know somebody's modern day idea of what he's larping in 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 some sense. But yeah, it was it was fascinating and it reminded me of John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven. I don't know if you if you have read that book but yeah this within within a, a religion of this sort that that um where you have such an incredible fervency and and desire to believe and the type of it, it inspires mania in certain individuals um and you see that you know, take a sinister turn in in murder among the Mormons, but very similarly in Under the Banner of Heaven, and he digs you know back into the history of the church, and you know, not that it needs to be an entire podcast episode about Mormonism, but he he gives a a potted history of of just all of the the wrinkles of the founding of the church and 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 how lawless it was in so many respects. You know, from you know Joseph Smith's, I think he had. 43 underage consorts like over the sort of course of his life and that's what ended up leading to him getting dragged out of you know a sort of a local jail and being shot in the street and so it's such a a seedy kind of fascinating textured um backdrop to to what has now been you know become you know the Mitt Romney of you know of of religions you know the sort of coiffed and um I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting. I 
I I love it and and I agree it it felt like one of those things where the documentary makers or the story makers or the historians you sort of walk into that whole area and you might think oh I I think I know what I'm getting here and then you start to scratch the surface and the the richness and strangeness and um, all shades of humanity aspect of these stories just really starts they they must have thought we we have struck a seam of gold here and let's let's go for it this this is so much weirder than anything we could have made up <laughs> which i think is very much a, a kind of mormon thing in general right it's like um one of the things that i picked out and again we're probably not going to massively spoil the documentary but I'm, I'm not too worried to be honest um near the center of this documentary there's a thread of a young guy who gets raised in a a very religiously strict environment and he gets a little bit of freedom in his life and he rapidly starts to question and shift his perspective on the things he's been raised in and um one of the things that i, I i've been really interested in that's kind of come through in the notes we've been talking about is um does that connect to your path and your creative journey as well oh absolutely uh i think there's like we were talking about that that kind of rug pull moment in that in that story uh and and i think Everybody, maybe it's part of that the monomyth of the the hero's journey, but there's there's this moment of you're going along through life and your early life and you know maybe into adolescence. Everything's the whole story of why things are you know why things are the way they are. Everything feels pretty sewn up and and you sort of have that solved and then you can figure out where to go to college and where you know all the just these other minor details you can sort of clean those up and tie up those loose threads. And, you know, I think that was, you know, a, a well-intentioned, um, what my parents felt like was a gift that they were giving me was that the the universe was ordered in, you know, had this grand design behind it. And you know, there were, you know, gods and angels and, you know, heaven to go to after you died. And, and, and I don't want to caricature that and, and, and make it seem, um, you know, sillier than than it's a very profound and meaningful part of their lives and is to this day. However, when I sort of in a progressive fashion over the course of my life, being you know as as you mentioned in the intro, I've I've been sort of a professional question asker for my you know most of my career. You know, from being a journalist to and I I just sort of stumbled into these different careers that just put me in front of interesting people and and allowed me to ask questions and and I was always doing the same thing in the background in my own life and you know asking sort of church you know leaders who worked with you know the church youth group and things like that this was a, a very uh, american evangelical sort of protestant strain of christianity a, a southern baptist sort of strain but uh, I was always interested in books. I was always interested in movies, and and so I kind of characterize my childhood as the walled garden. It was the, you know, it was it was neat. It was tidy, and 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 my parents, who were you know Christian missionaries, I was born in Ireland, and uh, when they were you know here, spreading sort of evangelicalism to you know Catholics here in Ireland, uh, um, they. They sort of built this, this 
this very neat small postage stamp sized um, space where every where everything kind of made sense and but I was I just I don't think I was ever fully happy um, sort of playing within that space and I I just wanted to push outside and and then uh, you know that started happening gradually but one of the key moments at which that happened was I think I was 15 or 16 and I sort of became incredibly obsessed with with this roots rock band from Athens Georgia called the Vigilantes of Love and oh cool yeah and, and they were they were brilliant with the you know their songs were you know they had songs about Andersonville the you know the civil war detention camp in Andersonville Georgia they had you know what roots rock band has ever written a song about Eleanor Roosevelt you know they have a song called Eleanor about her. so it was just somebody who was sort of a history nerd but he was also uh, part of the reformed like Protestant kind of tradition and so they had religious themes kind of weaving into his work and 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 also I think dealt with quite severe depression and so there were a lot of darker <laughs> themes in his work that in my kind of rosier sort of Christian upbringing uh, that hearing somebody singing outwardly about this and you know confessing these feelings of, of you know self-hatred and these things it it chimed with something that that had been very subterranean in my own life and very yeah. unspoken and so that is a, a very long and winding road that leads me to a book that's very <clears throat> core to to my life journey one of those some of those just those moments where the road just forks into and 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 a book is is sort of the sign that that sort of points in the direction that you that you end up moving and that book was Godric by by yeah. a Vermont uh, you know minister named Frederick Beekner who he was he worked in the church but he was always sort of countercultural to that to that space as well uh, he was part of American evangelicalism and yet he was himself like he had uh, his father had committed suicide when he was very young. He had a deep, he was deeply wounded from that loss very early in life. Um, so cl clearly a threat of depression in the family, one that he dealt with as well. Um, and so there was a deep wisdom and sorrow. He had been shaped by uh, the sadness, you know, the deep, deep grieving in his own life. And then also his his sense that, you know, no matter how tightly he buttoned that top button that there was there was something mm. uh somewhat broken and uh it's a very august augustinian idea um yeah. but uh yeah i saw you popped the name augustine into the uh show notes and and it just triggered a, a quote that i had to go back and look up to, you know make sure i had it right but he augustine said we are we are born between piss and shit. I mean, that was, he, it was in Latin, but that was exactly what the quote was of, um, he had his very grim view, view of human nature. Um, so that is something that I really needed to understand at the time that I was, that I came into contact with Godric with that book, um, because it is about a, it's about a 12th century hermit living, you know, in a very remote, you know, locale in the north of England, you know, punishing t 
temperatures, whether he's living in a little hovel out by a river and he's daily going and plunging himself into this cold water to try to purge himself of of bodily desire, of you know, lust of and almost you know, trying to wash away all of this this colorful seedy past of his youth and seafaring and and all of these adventures that he goes on and and he's he's living with a with a a mixture of regret but also um you know a real treasuring of of all of that life experience that he'd had and and so one day this uh monk named Reginald is sent from, you know, by the Catholic church because they, they want to canonize Godric, um, make him a saint. And, and so the, the book is the recounting of his life events because Reginald wants to you know, record you know, the details of his life so that they have this, you know, this picture of, you know, here's why he, we sainted him. And, um, but the whole book is, Godric basically, uh, you know, spitting invective at Reginald as Reginald tries to, uh, you know, write this really, this hagiography, this real honeyed, you know, dipping his quill in like a jar of honey and then writing this really, you know, sweet, um, you know, battlerized kind of version of of his life. And he's saying, no, I want you to tell the story as it really is about the wretched person I am, about all of the people I've let down, about... And so... I mean, I'm reading this as a 15-year-old, you know, sort of growing up, and mm. and my my brain was I just I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have a category for for this kind of story, something that was, uh, it was such a confessional work, um, and it was it seemed to come from a I think it was important that it came from a religious perspective, um, but it showed that. You could think in in contrarian ways, and and so that was important. That first real strong pull of the thread in terms of exploring what now I see as as the the shadow, which is that you know that Jungian concept. Um, and and for listeners, it's just it's that part of ourself that we we develop complexes to disassociate from or. Um, or or do therapeutic work to get in touch with the aspects of ourself that are not nice that are not nice to look at or you know the the people that you know we see these dark flashes in our psyche in our thoughts in our fantasy life where we wonder who is that person um you know i was joking with my brother a while back um sort of about how we both shared in a random conversation, we were talking about how occasionally we'll just have these thoughts of like at the dinner table of like just taking like a handful of food and just throwing it in the face of the person person sitting across from us. And just for no reason, like these thoughts will kind of like pop out of our head of just doing something that's like completely antisocial and like shatters the decorum for that moment. And, and so, yeah, the, the, the shadow. I mean, that's it's that's kind of a comical example, but it's you know I think we've all nursed resentments. We've all you know had um, yeah. We've all had you know those moments of wanting to harm ourselves or others or or just or destroy rather than create. And and so that was yeah. That's been a, a really central part of my creative journey. And because I think it at so many different points over my life, I've you know I've I've been really torn between that that desire to 
to tear down and to um, profane something that is that is beautiful and and you know that's that's probably even a part of that thread of wanting to take that that Christian uh, upbringing where my parents you know were missionaries and you know they were um, supported financially by donors you know sort of throughout their friend network and over you know they had we would go on fundraising you know sort of road trips across the US and we'd sing in front of church congregations as a family and and then people would you know pledge and then we'd go back to Ireland and and people would you know send us money every month to to live and because you know they weren't being paid for the missionary work that they were doing and so I think there was that pressure as a kid to you know keep the family story you know, nice and you know just yeah. you know that dream family the family that has it all together and and so uh, so that urge to just you know fling fling mud at that at that nice rosy picture and and kind of take a fork and scrape you know scrape the canvas to ribbons and um, but also now as you know getting into my 40s and and putting my sort of angry resentful uh you know, teenage rebellion, which, you know, just happened about, you know, 15, 20 years you know, later than, than it normally ought to. Um, I've sort of moved to more of a place of equanimity and, and uh, ability to hold both of, you know, both of these things in tandem, the disappointments, uh, but also the, you know, the deep gratitude for, I think, for a parent to, to want to, you know, wrap their arms around their children, even if that that feels like a, you know, a wall surrounding that kind of childhood garden. You know, it's it it's an act of love on their part, and and so now with my Absolutely. own children, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to keep a permeable sort of membrane where where there is that order, but there's also they're able to to venture out into the chaos um, and the disorder that's that's always that's always looming that's really fascinating and it and it's such a beautiful way of expressing it too i i agree um one thing that really struck me just as as we were talking um so i i did different versions of um essentially drama and theater training um years ago we had some 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 really interesting and re really powerful teachers and one of the things that kept on coming through was this idea um that there is a there is a fundamental hunger just for truth. Um, and what you were saying sort of obviously early on, I think we tend to just kind of accept the things around us. And then we realize, oh, well, maybe that's not the whole case. And we and we almost always get quite angry at that. And we rebel, we struggle, we fight, we, we go through that phase. And then even when you get beyond that and you start to reconcile all these different quite, quite warring forces, mm -hmm. I think in the end, especially as creators, you really just have this hunger for let's let's just tell the truth and and obviously that's a that's a complex multifaceted thing and it's not an easy thing at all um but that sense of in some way or another just kind of standing there naked and being okay with that and 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 um let less artifice more of just the here here is who i am and what made me and here are the things around us and i can see this clearly and there's a there's a triumph and a struggle in just the ongoing journey to try and just get to those very simple moments where you go, this is how it is. Mm. And I think, um, um, I, I didn't read Godric when I was younger. It's, it's actually surprising to me that, um, 
and until recently I, I didn't know it existed because it, it's it's very much in the the space of books that I think I would have wanted to read when I was younger and I just completely miss it for some mm. reason but when I read it one of the first things that strikes me when you hear the description to me at least from my background it sounds like it's in the same space as something like the name of the rose it sounds like we're talking about monks and monasteries and kind of essentially religious debates and when you actually read Godric and it's there on the very first page the language itself is so rough-hewn and beautiful and very Anglo-Saxon it's not Latinate that's right read the name of the rose which is uh, yeah um so the name of the rose is essentially a monkish Sherlock Holmes mystery, which was written by a guy called Umberto Eco, who was incredibly smart and spoke all the languages and had all the PhDs. And the name of the rose is a wildly clever and wonderful book. But it is a book written by a man who is very smart and is showing you how smart he is. And one of the things that immediately struck me about Godric was that completely different sense of the language where he's trying to chop the language right down into those kind of rough-hewn Anglo-Saxon roots, and he's just trying to talk to you. And that has such a different flavor from what my, my, my inexperienced mind would have thought of as monks and stuff. And yeah, sort of thing. The, the high church, and I think even, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. And even, even, even with writers like like Augustine or even some of the Christian mystics who tended to write in Latin, even though you can tell that the the journeys they're going on are very strange and they're often being really honest, the language itself, the Latin itself, gets in the way. And Godric, you just remove that barrier and here's this guy just struggling with who he is and what's going to be left of him and the, the tale that other people are trying to tell of his life, which is such a wonderful dynamic. I, I, I really enjoyed that book. Oh, man. Uh- Gosh, that's yeah, the, like that's so beautifully said. Uh, it rem- it reminds me of an episode of. Did have you ever um, sort of gotten hooked on the Dan Carlin podcast, the Hardcore History podcast? Yes, <laughs> just, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, there's a, the episode where he's talking about. Um, it was lo- like the sort of internal strife within you know between luther and one of you know the sort of the other christian writers that he was talking about that ends in like this torture and i'm trying to remember the name of the episode i'll i'll try to think of it and put it in and maybe you can drop it in the show notes but but it's just there's a whole i mean the whole podcast is he tells a story but he goes on all these you know colorful digressions along the way and and he talks about the you know, the Dark Ages and, you know, how the, you know, you had the Roman Empire kind of stretching out all the way to, you know, Britain and, you know, these sort of outer, you know, almost like the far, far reaches of the empire. And then when they pulled out, there was, it was almost like this idea of, you know, Detroit kind of, you know, decades back, where it was like the, um, you know, the, trash wouldn't get picked up and the and there's just this you know the normal services that like the infrastructure of civilization that was you know the trains running on time so to speak that just stopped once once they pulled out and so all of a sudden you had you had this vacuum of order um you know which which this all this chaos kind of rushed in to fill, but but there was a huge revolution during that that period where you know the church kind of lost its uh, the church filled in the gap um, 
sort of temporarily and became the authority structure, you know, within within all of these you know different parts of what was formerly the you know that empire, and uh, but then as you know the 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 church lost the ability to you know mandate the you know you were talking about Latin and and you know the it being illegal to translate you know the the Bible and the gospel into the language of the people and because that was just giving too much power to the peasantry um, like that that hardcore history episode like just talks about you know the aftermath of you know and all of the all of the the chaos that erupted once you know once that revolution kind of happened and you know people were able to read and interpret the bible for themselves without you know without yes. the priesthood and you know sort of doing that work for them and it, it's it's just a fascinating but it's also a very violent period um in uh, in human history and and so that that kind of sets the the stage for that that time period as well Oh, absolutely. I, I always found it fascinating, this idea that, um, especially then, but um, essentially whoever gets to control the written language gets to control the world and the future story that people will tell of those mm. times. Mm-hmm. And, and so much of that, you can see it as just a, a straight up power dynamic um, between the different forms of written language and the shift between some of the oral languages and that thing of, well, you can remain an oral language, but you, you will be lost and there's and there's those those wonderful struggles and and I think that's um, especially something like Chaucer or the the very very early kind of Middle English and Old English things where no we're going to write things down in our own vernacular same thing in Italian with Dante obviously Dante makes the the conscious choice to write a, a massive epic not in Latin which is the only language for epics but in his Italian this rough language. And that's such a revolutionary act. I, I always love that dynamic so much. It's just a wonderful idea. Now, we were talking about families, and, yeah. and, and, and this is really interesting. Because, um, so I, I was the opposite. I, I did not grow up in any kind of really religious family. But we have a, a, a different but I think very similar dynamic. Um, so obviously, I grew up in New Zealand, which, depending on how you look at it, is either the top or the bottom of the world. And I grew up in New Zealand in the 1980s before the internet. And what I remember of it very clearly in, in hindsight was that the, the um, horizons were very small. They were very bounded. At the time, um, there weren't a lot of communication or travel or business or all the links that we assume that you have with the rest of the world now. And so the New Zealand that I remember growing up in was a world where there were pretty simple things. If, if you were a man, then you played cricket and rugby. Mm. There were certain roles that you could aspire to. There were there were a lot of social norms that formed a very tightly bounded circle around things like beaches and barbecues and all the kind of Kiwi stuff. Mm. And as long as you stayed within those expectations, things were going to be fine. And the challenge for me, and I think for many people, of course, is um, I was fundamentally confused by all this. I, 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 I genuinely realize now that as a child, I, I had some kind of challenge where the kind of waves of information and stimulation of the world kind of washed over me and confused me a great deal. I genuinely spent a lot of time just not knowing what the fuck was going on, on the most basic things, you know, why why are we having this conversation or how does that thing work or all that sort yeah. of stuff. And the, the family dynamic for me was always this 
kind of two competing forces where on the one hand, again, if you just kind of shut up and keep your head down in 1980s New Zealand, everything will be fine. And any kind of inner turmoil, which doesn't really exist in this world, you just kind of keep that to yourself. We don't, we don't talk about those things and everything's fine. And the second side is this idea where there, was, there were these tiny outlets. One very specific thing for me, because we're talking about books. Um, my mum would take me on trips to secondhand bookstores. And this was, of course, back when those things still existed and they were wonderful. And a secondhand bookstore to me at the age of about nine was just this um, TARDIS-like place where you went and you got hints of all of the universes mm -hmm. beyond the very small sphere of 1980s New Zealand. And it was always really random. One of the things I love about secondhand bookstores is by their nature, your physical journey through the bookstore is always going to be some random collection of ideas and possibilities and books that would never happen again. There's no digital ordering yeah. to a secondhand bookstore. It's um, a shuffled deck, essentially. And so yeah. you get these... Exactly. Wonderful. It's wonderful. And this idea, which, which is separate in some way from a um, comforting but difficult religious um, set of ideas, but this idea of on the one hand you have a world that is well-ordered and you have a place in it, and if you accept that place, you're good. And the other hand, you have these hints, these little escape hatches where you go, there's all these other universes out there. And it might be dangerous and strange and challenging and a, a weird journey to go on, but there's all these doorways. And that back and forth of, well, wh which one do we choose? How do we choose it? And over the course of our lives, which one leads us to the place that we want to be in? It's, a, it's, it's really interesting hearing you talk that we obviously come from very different circumstances, yeah. but it feels like there are some parallels there. Absolutely. And that's, that's why I, I, I tried to take some pains to extract it from just this is the religious upbringing to this is more of a yeah. universal human experience and i think that's why the why that you know, jo you know joseph campbell's idea of of this monomyth of um which is tied into jung and this idea that we we keep telling the, the exact same stories <laughs> you know no matter you know where we are in the world um no matter you know how much contact we have you have whole civilizations that have no contact with one another who create the same, you know, origin stories. I've got, hold it. This is, sorry, that's, that's not great for, for podcasting, but I have a book, yeah, a couple of large bookcases behind me. And this is, that's why I like having this bookcases because it's like, oh, there's you know, this book that, but it's, it's, I don't know if, You've seen this one, but it's called "In the Beginning: Creation Stories from Around the World," and so it has it has it oh has, nice, it has no, this amazing like Egyptian, you know, sort of or this illustration of a an eagle with you know, this anthropomorphic with sort of a human torso, and but it just goes through all of these. There's these gorgeous illustrations, you know, throughout of these different Genesis uh, myths from different civilizations, and and there's. It's so fascinating. You go from Native American to you know to Egyptian to the Indian you know subcontinent, and and they're they're all the same. You just you're just you're reading these um, these dreams, you know, essentially um, because actually that's a that's a good entry point into one of the the kind of key things I've been trying to understand lately is the way that. Um, that fiction, the way that fiction functions as as externalized uh, dreamscape, 
Uh, and nice. Yeah. You know, I've heard, I've been digging into the interpretation of dreams and, and, you know, obviously Freud and, and Jung, like they can go to some, you know, some fairly kind of woo woo spooky sort of, sort of places in terms of, you know, the subconscious. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't read anything as gospel anymore in my life. It's, you know, I, I'm looking for, you know, threads of, you know, uh, there's that, that quote that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Uh, and so I, nice. I think their, their kind of work on the subconscious and, and dreams and, and all of the kind of inner, you know, that chaotic sort of inner world is, you know, I don't, I don't read that as truth, but I think it, they, they're pointing to something that that I think is is real, which is that there are there are things we're trying to work out, um, and that happens on a subconscious level. There are knots that we're trying to untie in our in our psyches, um, and they're very very deep, and we engage with them in dream, like in in. Uh, and in just thoughts and 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 not visions in the in the kind of myth, mystical sense, but but visions in terms of just our our inner fantasy life, and and so I think that expresses itself. It expresses itself in dreams, but it also I think that story writing story, especially you know, especially fiction, but nonfiction as well. Uh, these things seep in, and um, you know we were. We're working through um, things that we haven't reconciled yet, things that are still open loops, I guess you could call them. And we almost can't engage with them directly. It has to be, um, that's, it's too crude. It almost has to be more of the looking at the eclipse, you know, by holding up, you know, sort of a, a piece of, yes. you know, a piece of, two pieces of paper or something, or looking at the reflection of something or, um, in a way, those realizations are almost too holy. Maybe there's like a, you know, when God appears to Moses and he's not able to look directly at him and he has to sort of stand behind a cliff, you know, edge. And um, But there's, I'll, I'll just, I'll give an example. Um, so I was writing this column when I moved back to Ireland from the U.S. Uh, I had to leave the magazine that I was working for because this was, you know, many, quite a few years before this whole work from home, uh, work from anywhere kind of uh, revolution happened and, and COVID kind of blew up our normal ways of doing things. But I was writing a weekly uh, column for the for the Paste Magazine website and, and it was a video game column. And, you know, that column could have just been here here are new games that are coming out and here's maybe you know some interesting insights into whatever the latest topical game is and 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 now that tends to be a discussion of you know some of you know what are the you know the social justice implications of cyberpunk or you know something of that sort you know trans representation in the game cyberpunk but at at that po point when i was writing that column i was already kind of moving into doing some deep um, sort of personal archaeology around my past. And you can see, you could, like, from the remove of, you know, being a few years beyond that now, I could see I was just, I hadn't, I had to, I had to 
unlock something and I was just barreling straight towards it. Um, but without even really consciously doing that work. Um, and so there was, there's one, um, column that I, that I wrote where I talked about my, the breaking through into an appreciation of first person shooters. I mean, I know this sounds like such a screeching left, left turn, but, um, I, I had always disliked first person perspective in video games and I all, and all of the games that I liked, I remember actively, uh, I had watched my brother, you know, play, you know, Castle Wolfenstein and, you know, all like those early id games and doom and, and I just, I felt so uneasy with that first person perspective. And I always, all the games I loved were, were third person. And if I ever, you know, if I was playing, you know, like Fallout 3 or, you know, any game that um, that let you tr- like toggle back and forth between third person and and third person, like y- your character always looked so, <laughs> like so awkward and their movement didn't look human at all. And it was, it was never like, an, it, seeing yourself there was never, you know, particularly like visually dazzling kind of thing. But I always felt more comfortable, more at ease with that kind of looking at myself from the outside rather than there was something so unsettling, especially in a lot of these games that like Bioshock was one of the first games I I ever played that was like where I felt like the first per- I was forced into the first person perspective. Yeah. But the game was so engrossing that that I just had to, you know, I I just got completely in, you know, I was going to say enraptured but it sounds like you know trying to pun on the on the game but I yeah. pun, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I as I look back on that column like talking about kind of my making peace with that with first person that first person perspective and almost like not wanting to be too immersed like wanting to just have a bit of remove where what was happening in the game or if there was violence and a lot of times there was violence in these games, it was happening to somebody else. And so you almost have a, a, a simulacrum for the idea of um, being removed from your own experience of being you know, sort of abstracted from your own life. And, yeah. and so I think that was, there was a like, that's where I feel like, I was having a dream and sort of thinking about using video games as the the kind of safe like role play for something that was that didn't feel safe at all which was how do I have how do I sort of embody you know, live an embodied life where I'm sort of having my own experience where I'm not living in constant um sort of outside almost like living outside myself analyzing my own actions and and yeah. uh, so i always felt that i always felt watched i always had um i was always unsettled by this idea of you know going to heaven after i died and uh, there were old chick tracts there were these old religious tracts that have now become kind of cult almost like uh, like comic like the comic art in them is 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 sort of this crumb style like very you know it's very 
it's just amazing art like the art style and then the you know the messages are so strident and like the sort of you know fundamentalist kind of venom and the characters of all the different you know the atheist is always some drooling college professor who's you know just you know the caricature of evil and then the you know you have and then he always has some breakthrough at the end where he you know accepts jesus and and all this thing but um <laughs> but yeah the oh god <laughs> so how did i get into how did i get into the chick tract um no it's a, it's a really interesting point to me as well it's it's um this will be another slight tangent but um it was definitely a thing especially in the 80s with video games that um having to have some kind of abstract presence in the game was a thing because if you remember the very few experiments in first person 3d in the 80s um there's a there's a game set in an Egyptian pyramid that that does it, and obviously partly it was simply that the actual hardware basically couldn't run 3D, but the very few times that people tried those things, they 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 stood out, um, and they were unusual games, and everyone was much more comfortable with I can see myself running along on the platformer, I can see mm. the Bionic Commando, the whatever, mm-hmm. and I I remember really clearly, literally the first time that I ever saw Doom. Cause I was over at a friend's place and it was the very first level. It was the bit where you go up the stairs and you can see outside and there's mountains outside. And I distinctly remember a, a phase change in my real understanding of, Oh shit, that's a world. Mm. And one, one of the things that fascinates me most about video games. And I, I think it might be one of the things that you, you're also hedging towards is um, this idea that they may be a rehearsal for essentially mass migration to shared imaginative territory. Yeah. Because, um, and, and that idea that the actual imaginative territory, um, going back to Jung, my, my very stupid, simple core takeaway from all of Jung that I read was um, everyone has a basement and Jung's argument is it's kind of a shared basement. Mm-hmm, the collective unconscious, yeah. And that, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's very much what I think. And, and this idea that... Um, these things that we do, for instance, in video games, they're not just necessarily taking place inside our heads, inside the neurons, that there may actually be external imaginative territory that one way or another we're glimpsing and visiting. And if you take that as a possibility, then you go, okay, so what are we doing to that territory with all of the stuff that we engage in? Is this an external environment outside of ourselves that we visit through things like dreams and video games and books and all these things? But if it's real and it exists beyond us and it's it has some ongoing existence outside of our minds, can we pollute it? Is it subject to things like climate change? What What is going on out there in this territory that games and other things might be helping us access? And I've always been really fascinated by, by that. Um, until maybe 150 years ago, the idea that carbon essentially in the atmosphere was a a shared thing that human action could affect and that you could actually overall affect the atmosphere of the earth by your actions wasn't a well-accepted idea and you had all the core problems of how do you even measure that that thing you know how do you measure the invisible atmosphere and and all all these things and now of course we have a pretty solid set of systems whereby we can measure Mm -hmm. these things what if we're at the same point in terms of shared imagination we can hypothesize about it we can't measure it we can't prove it 
but are we at the start of a journey where video games and things like that start this mass shift into shared imaginative territory? And then the, the real question becomes, what do we do with that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I I feel like the idea of like one of the chief joys, I think the things that's so alluring about video games is the feeling of control. The, you know, there's very something like, I mean, I have like, you know, the, my old US, my USB re- reconfigured nice, beautiful. Nintendo, uh, old NES uh, sort of controller that I've been going back and, you know, just having my comfort food, like retro gaming, you know, fix on my iMac here at my, at my desk. Um, I was like, I was going back and trying to beat Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson's punch out the other night because I, oh, because nice. I, had ne- yes. I had never Wonderful. like finished the game. I'd, <laughs> I'd taken down sort of every, every single boss, but not the, not the raid boss. Um, but there is like that idea of pushing a button and seeing something happen on the screen, that feeling of direct control is, even as elemental as that is, there's something I saw my son when he first, when I first handed him a, I think it was a Wii controller and like Mario Galaxy, and he would shake the controller and then Mario would do his little spin jump and he would push the button and Mario would jump. And and I could just see something light up in his, in his brain. If, you know, if we'd, yeah. if we'd had him in the fMRI, like, you know, you would have just seen these little blooms of, of kind of light sort of, um, and so that feeling of control is, the, is, is something that yeah. is, uh, I think for, for most of human existence, we've had such local, such limited control over our environment. Everything was overwhelming. Um, we were constantly being battered, you know, around by the, by nature, by, you know, the, a, just even the most basic storm could completely ruin you. Um, and now we're so insulated from that, and it's but it's gone even farther than that. Now we actually feel so powerful that um, we feel too powerful that we're you know we look at you know the you know we look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we look at you know we engage with um, you know the f- effect that we're having on climate, and and so over our history we've gone from you know from feeling completely inept and unable to counter nature to now feeling like we're a threat to nature and uh, that we could be powerful enough to destroy this world that you know we've been under the thumb of for you know 99.9% of our species existence and so I think there is sort of a link to to video games in that way of um, being this all this all-powerful thing and now we're we simultaneously feel, you know, weak and just godlike, you know, in in our power and agency at the same time. It's a really interesting. It's a really interesting point as well. I mean, I mean, at at the moment, a a vast amount of essentially video game attention is being spent on getting dropped into a forest and having to chop logs and go right back to the basics of trying to survive in an environment. I mean, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is the thing at the moment. It's it's pretty, um, and also really interesting to your point that the, you know the the absolute core, at least to me, of essentially formal game design is still the basic response yeah. loop. You do something, and the game environment feeds that back to you, and 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 everything builds on top of that. It's 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 and and if it's not doing that, then it quite possibly isn't a game. And you might discover that six months later after you prototyped. But if there is no core response loop, 
and getting those those loops and that feedback to the point where a young child can take instant delight in I do this and this comes back and that's still the the absolute core of it it's it's absolutely fascinating that that's still there and right now we are we are apparently obsessed as a civilization with um let, let's be vikings or let's be lost in our own little island but we'd better chop some wood and gather some berries and and cook some food all those things we haven't had to worry about for yeah. a very long time yeah i mean i was i was thinking about who is it paladini or the one of those the writers who's uh, he's got a book called the art of persuasion and uh, but he he talks about the I mean, you see this in how to win friends and influence people like these kinds. I mean, they go back, you know, obviously, as long as people have been trying to get people to buy vacuum cleaners, you know, there's or or any other product. It's like, how do we sort of create a bond with somebody that makes them want to buy the product we're selling or read the next page in our book or um, whatever it is, uh, or get me a slot on spot on Oprah or whatever. Uh, But he talks about the power of literally just saying back to someone what they've what they've just said. Um, and having, I mean, you see this in therapeutic settings all the time of like, I'm I'm feeling really lonely. Like you're feeling lonely. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Like, um, it almost is that like just that feedback of somebody heard what I said, reflected it back to me. And, and now, you know, I feel, I feel understood or I I feel like another human being, or even the mirroring of posture, they say that if you're in a job interview, if the if the person is like folding their arms or like puts their arms behind, like you just literally just do exactly what they do. And you know, this ape, you know, sort of primal part of our brain is, you know, feels more connected to this person who's sort of mirroring our, you know, our, you know, talking at the same speed, locking into the same tempo of speech, you know, mirroring body language. And we do it unconsciously. I mean, you know, some of these authors, you know, try to you know, spin it around so you can harness it for fun and profit. But um, but I, it's it's just a fascinating need that we have as human beings in video games are like hey we've you know (laughs) you know created a a steroid anabolic steroid you know injected version of of this this thing it's an absolute just as you're saying the thing about you know there's the the idea of um uh consciously training yourself and you do meet those people who have clearly read all of the books and very diligently followed all of the steps and they're making sure to look you in the eye just the right number of times as they shake your hand say your right name there's always that artificiality every, about yeah, it every few yeah, seconds yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. But, it's, <laughs> but you think that 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 really early relationship with computers um i'd be interested in hearing what yours was i i um i must have started interacting with computers around about 1983 or 4 and they would have been essentially either Apple IIe's or IBM PCs. And obviously the feedback loop and the response back then was um, very difficult, very frustrating, very badly designed by our standards. But I certainly remember that fascination and that same thing that you're talking about your child having of just like, well, I push this button and then something happens. And it's arguable that outside of my parents, you know, the world in general probably wasn't doing that for me oh, at that yeah. time. The, the world probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and then there's this really blocky little maze. And if I push the thing, I can see myself moving through the maze. And, and, and I really do remember that very clearly. I mean, I mean, did you have those kind of formative experiences with games and computers? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember in... In, in Ireland, my we had a sort of Commodore 64, and you know we were, you know, 
playing asteroids and and then there was it was great my my dad had a he upgraded to a commodore 128 and when we had moved back to the u.s at this stage and we were living in southern california and he they, he had the computer set up in in their walk-in closet in their bedroom but it was you know there was a locked door between you know the rest of the house and and the bedroom and so we found we found the key to the bedroom and it was there was a spare key to it sort of up in a sort of Cadbury's uh, like chocolate tin and uh and so my parents would leave and this was like dun 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 and we're like I was like getting you know sort of climbing up on each other's shoulders to get the key out of the out of the you know the chocolate tin and then we'd unlock it and we'd go in and we'd play video games on the on the the Commodore in the in the walk-in closet and and then you know we'd have somebody on lookout you know one of the siblings you know so when the car was coming into the driveway and then we'd lock it up really quickly and you know get out and then you know go jump into our beds and um but i remember i don't even know where my dad would get he would get these floppy disks that had you were talking about the secondhand bookstore but there would just be a bunch of games on like lunar lander and and yeah the thing that makes it just seem so like it's so nostalgic uh, for me, but it, it's also so blurry because I mean you're you're going back uh, thirty you know, thirty thirty some years because I was I was probably eight or nine and uh, this was the late eighties and and uh, and and so he would he would get these you know floppy disks and they would have a bunch of games on them but i don't even know the name of a lot of the games i have these i just have like yeah. these dreamlike memories of i mean one in particular that i loved i was you know you're sort of on a jet pack and you're you know you're sort of flying through these different like you're in some kind of on another planet or something but you're going through these like interior it had a metroidvania kind of feel to it where you're going between screens and you know trying to you had a little laser that you shoot, but I have no, I don't know what that game is called. Um, I have no, I couldn't, even with the power of Google, there's no way I can, I will ever be able to locate that game. It was, you know, it was just this experience. It was like meeting a stranger, you know, in an airport bar and having, you know, an interesting conversation and then going your way and you never see that person for the rest of your life. You didn't catch their name. And, but you had, you know, just an interesting conversation together and and then nice. and you always and you have some glimmer of like appreciation for having had that experience but but it's it's gone um and yeah and so so yeah, we're talking about it was an amazing thing so we're talking about young but these the these these kind of primal memories that i think we both have right right back almost the dawn of 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 our own consciousness of of as you say this kind of dreams of will i'm i'm flying in a jetpack and i and and I imagine if you ever actually did kind of find the game and find the box art, it would it, it would almost lose something because it's such a yeah. I, I I have the same thing. I I I remember ASCII art games in in dungeons and castles and all these things that 
I'm pretty sure there were hundreds of them around and, and I, I could not tell you the names, but I, I, I just remember them. I, I remember moving through dungeons and exploring trapdoors and fighting monsters and all these things. And yeah, I, I, um, later on for me, there was a, there was a thing. It's really interesting. I, I love so much that, that you were breaking into your parents' bedroom <laughs> to play the games. It's just so wonderful. We, our our um, kids pay us back. I, you know, I, they, they're constantly <laughs> sneaking games in the, in the middle of the night. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, what? so is there is there any more formative experience for anyone these days than um but my thing was um um when i started when i was about 10 all of the real action was either on the commodore 64 as you say or on something like a nintendo and i didn't have either and um what i did have is i i had a subscription to zap 64 which if i think you're our age and you're in the kind of commonwealth sphere was was the magazine that told you all about the hottest commodore 64 games and so I, I had this this massive mental gap where every month I would read Zap 64 and then I would have no way to actually play the games. So I would fetishize them. Yeah. And I would imagine what it would be like. So and and I would I would go over to friends' places quite blatantly. I didn't I I don't want to hang out. I wanted to play <laughs> I the know. game. I did the exact same thing. I did I was the exact same thing. Yeah. I would just go over and invite <laughs> myself in and like and go into the back bedroom and like turn on Legend of Zelda or something. Uh, it's yeah. unbelievable. And it's crazy as again how much you can get away with. You just literally show up and wander in, and you just start playing the game. And everyone's like, "Oh, you okay, Jason? You're there? Yeah, mate. Good to see you. Yeah. <laughs> Good fun. Amazing. <laughs> Excellent oh, memories. And and then now, um, at the, at the kind of other end of that, one thing I've I've been fascinated about. Um, so obviously you spent time around League of Legends, which is an amazing game. But founding Tune and Fairweather, and these beautiful physical object books that you're creating. Which, which to me are this wonderful meeting point. You made the book about Dark Souls, which is obviously a video yeah. game, and it's this physical artifact, a, a, a the sort of thing that you want on your bookshelf. Um, where's the impulse for that? And and it's like full circle right back to, from the digital to the analog and these precious items. Um, how's that going? And and why are you doing it? It's uh, like it's it's actually such a perfect segue because we were just talking about that amazing seductive <clears throat> feeling of uh, you know pressing a button and you know watching a reaction on screen or that feeling of agency of of i i wonder if i can you know jump to that you know that cliff and there, it looks like there's a you know, like a whole other part of the map over there let me see if i can do that and and when i when we first wrote the book i wrote it with a, another journalist and friend of mine named keza mcdonald and and we were, we published it through uh, a press called you know, Backpage Press um, there in in the in Scotland, and and so working with a with a traditional press as you know, the author, you have you have a little bit of input, and you know they were they were very open to you know hearing our thoughts on cover art and and some of these different creative decisions around the <clears throat> excuse me around the the production of the book uh however maybe i was just had this control freak tendency built into me from playing video games but it's um it, it wasn't enough control for me which you know sound which is you know sounds very damning um and so the book that was that was eventually produced was um you know, ultimately the creation of a, a third party that I had a little bit of input in, but 
into, but uh, I had a, an exalted kind of idea in my mind of the sort of object I wanted to to create, and and it didn't achieve it didn't achieve that form. Um, you know, they created a a perfectly you know, adequate, you know, paperback version that had very beautiful cover art and, but it wasn't the kind of paper I, I wanted. And I remember sort of really trying to make the case for why a beautiful hardcover edition of the book, you know, would be a great idea. And, and that got, you know, politely, you know, these guys were great. Uh, like, this is not me throwing shade, but they, they wanted to make a, you know, they wanted to make sort of a mass market, you know, paperback like style book that was that was very accessible that was you know a tenor and and the type of book that i was imagining was you know a much more exp expensive book because it was um i mean i didn't have all of you know the details i just knew that it was it was going to be a hardcover or i wanted it to be a hardcover and i wanted it to to have some kind of a, a feeling of of gothic grandeur to it uh, maybe maybe it was nice. you know connected to Anne orlando or uh in my imagination then but there was there is something about dark souls there's something uh the the whole game uh, is sort of this spectrum again what i would call you know order and chaos you can call it um if you want to analogize to heaven and hell um these these kind of poles of dissolution where in lost isolith uh you you have magma you're sort of in the center of the earth and there's magma flowing and literally the rock is you know even that is sort of dissolved into you know this molten state and then at the very top of this kind of vertical vertically oriented world you have an orlando which is i don't think coincidentally um, you go from demonic and fire and everything chaotic and dissolved to like perfect marble, you know, cathedral, basically a city filled with nothing but cathedrals. Um, and so you have this this sort of heavenly city that is hyper ordered and everything is perfect symmetry. The cathedral, you know, is um, I mean, it is perfectly symmetrical and and, you know, down to such an incredibly meticulous uh, degree, and so when I was doing the book, I I wanted the the ideas to be the fluid kind of the chaotic soup of just trying to understand the game, grappling with that, but the form uh, containing that chaotic exploration, um, I wanted to feel pristine grand um architected and and so when we ended up creating the actual book uh i i launched tune and fairweather uh initially because i was working on a memoir um you know about my you know this religious upbringing that i've been alluding to and and it was so personal that i i couldn't imagine have working with an outside publisher to create the book that would contain that story because it was too personal and and so the idea of yeah, I just sure. felt like I'm going to have to create this myself because it needs to be just so and I have a I'm not I don't 
need to, you know, apologize, I suppose, for the this obsessive streak that I have, because you know, even though it, it, I have to make sure I keep it in check, it, it's it's a core part of my creative identity because, it, like, we're all trying to exert you know that control over you know our imaginative life and 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 whatnot. So, I, I decided to create Tune and Fairweather. Uh, I I named it Tune and Fairweather after you know, after the two snakes uh, that are pets of Godric. Um, it, they're mentioned in the very first chapter of the book. Uh, you know, I think the opening line is, I had five friends and two of them snakes. And then he goes back and, and so, but Tuna Fairweather are these snakes that sort of live with him in his hovel. He lives outdoors and, and uh, he sort of banishes them at the end of the first chapter. He, um, he's like, I bade them go away and, and return no more. And, and had this kind of St. Patrick sort of purging the snakes from, from Ireland, uh, which again is intersects quite well with my uh, personal biography of having missionary parents who idolized, you know, this St. Patrick, you know, this idea of somebody, you know, you know, the snakes, you know, quite obviously being, you know, sort of a metaphor for the pagan sort of element, you know, present within, you know, in the Irish Island and, and him sort of banishing them away. And, and I loved this idea of bringing the snakes kind of, you know, back in, in into the picture, welcoming them back. That was such a sad moment when Godric kind of, kind of nice. uh, banished them. It, it was a really, it was a really sad parting. And you can tell that he is even himself um, sort of, it begins on this note of grief and mourning the loss of this relationship with what I feel like is the shadow kind of part of, part of him. Uh, but that's, I mean, that is a tangent, but uh, so I wanted this, this you know, tune of Fairweather to be the, the place where I could make all those creative decisions. However, I had been sort of in the business world, you know, for long enough uh, where I knew that uh there was no chance that there was going to be you know, to launch the company with a with a me- obscure memoir about you know just some rand- randos uh, religious childhood and stuff. I mean that was I mean that's like the easiest way to bankrupt your company and sell you know, seven copies to like a few of your your personal friends. <laughs> uh, and so I, I just was thinking to myself like gosh like what else you know what else could I do? And and I realized that. There was that, un, there was that open th- loop of that project I'd wanted to create that hadn't turned out exactly as I'd hoped, and and yet there was still potentially the opportunity to do a hardcover version of You Died, and we already had, you know, I already had the book, and and so I got in touch with the with Backpage and said, would it be okay if I bought the hardcover rights to the book? Yeah, and I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to afford them. Uh, and But I just put it out there. I was like, let's explore the possibility anyway. And they were, you know, I'm so grateful. I mean, they they just said, we're, you know, we're excited for you. Um, they named a price that was just incredibly reasonable for um, and within, nice. you know, attainable for, for me at that stage, you know, in that sort of startup phase. And so I was able to do that and then just embark on that project, which ended up... Um, I think it probably took about 18 months from when we, when I started revising the book, um, because I wanted it to be the as close to perfect as it, as it could possibly be, 
and and so I updated all you know any sort of fact in the book that was like a few years out of date. Um, even if I just mentioned a, a Dark Souls YouTuber and had mentioned the you know the number of followers they had on YouTube, I'd go in and correct that to update it to what their you nice. know follower count is today. And uh, I wrote in a you know a new chapter for the book and um, added some additional stuff because at that point, you know, Bloodborne, Sekiro, um, some of the, the newer From Software yeah, games, sure. you know, the upcoming Elden Ring, you know, those, those weren't mentioned at all. And so I wanted those to be in the book. So it felt more authoritative. And then I ended up, uh, you know, designing a book that looks like a Bible, <laughs> you know, which is, uh, which is sort of amusing, amusing given my past that I ended up doing, uh, I put all of Miyazaki's <laughs> words in red and just said, you know, this is part of, you know, I'm haunted by this religious past and um, there are elements of it that are quite beautiful. And it's, a, you know, one of the unique, Bart Ehrman writes about this uh, quite a lot, the religious historian, but one of the unique aspects of the Christian faith is that it's a, it's a tradition that's that's very literary in a way that a lot of other faiths are mm. much more um, organized around you know an oral tradition and and even though a lot of the early um, you know, Christian sort of devotees were illiterate essentially like it was very difficult to actually you know find somebody to transcribe or um, you did need people with unique skills to even be able to you know, that's why people would go to the you know synagogue to hear the scrolls read is because they they couldn't read them at home mm. even if they wanted to because they they didn't have that you know that command over over the language over the written word so yeah so the the book it ended up we ended up using the we took the exact design from the rose window on the cathedral in Anne Orlando and our new designer, who is a former colleague of mine from Edge magazine, uh, from the Games Mag in the UK, there he, um, I sort of teamed back up with him because I admired his his design work so much, and so that was another one. Just like reaching out to see if I could get the hardcover rights to the book, I was, I was like, well, while we're just you know throwing you know throwing caution to the wind and just asking for everything we want, I'll see if I can get Andrew to you know, team back up with me. And he was, he was game and wanted to do something that was, he'd been making you know, designing magazines for nearly 20 years. And, uh, and he, the idea of doing a book and having something that had a bit more staying power. I mean, everything we do is going to get, mm -hmm. uh, you know, lost to memory at some point, but for, it feels like a, like a book, a hardcover book is just a little bit more indestructible and less uh, is going to be dissolved by time a little bit more slowly. And so there's something slightly reassuring about oh, having that legacy of that. It's my, it's my strong experience that um, a lot of designers and illustrators um, somewhere in their mind, they would really like to make a book. Mm. It's very much my my experience, which which very much matches yours. And 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 sometimes, if you ask at the right time, someone will 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 give, be very generous with that opportunity, which is great. It's it's, it's so wonderful to hear that it worked out so well. Oh yeah, in, in that sense. yeah. It's just such a gorgeous object, um, and it's it's very meaningful as well because um, that I think t Tom Bissell in his book Extra Lives, um, it's like some of the best nonfiction 
writing on games that there is. Um, he has in his, I think it's in the in the forward to the book, but he talks about a conversation he had with a, with a game designer who said, I feel like I'm writing my legacy in water, like just on the surface of the water. Um, because you might not even be able to, to run this software, you know, you know, I'm writing it for this console that's going to be uh, you know, obsolete and, you know, a few years and there's going to be a new, there's going to be new hardware. There's going to be a new, um, you know, all of, all of this code, you know, it might be like a, you give someone a cassette tape, you know, and like, how do you even listen to it now? I mean, how, do, like, where do you go yeah. to find a, you know, find a, a place to you know play that cassette and so that was the that is the that again that chaotic sort of element of of something that is he described it in that writing of water analogy is, is something very liquid and and so to in moving out of and digital any sort of digital product is you know that same way when a new operating system comes out like you know half the half the apps on your phone, half of the, you know, computer programs like, you know, aren't compatible with the new operating system and they're just, you can't run them anymore. And, um, however, the, a book and a, or a physical object, I, I think there's a growing, even for digital natives. And I kind of bridge that, that gap of, you know, I was, I feel very fortunate to have watched video games grow up and to have, you know, been a teenager, you know, when the internet came into mainstream usage and, and getting to really appreciate what a, a technological breakthrough that was. And, you know, and now we're at the, you know, potential complete, you know, remaking of the, you know, the monetary landscape with, you know, with fiat yes. currencies, like, you know, in a very precarious position and, you know, governments with, Three hundred trillion dollar balance sheets and no way to pay back the debt and no way to raise interest rates and and so you know where you know cryptocurrency uh, could you know remake the landscape again and so I've gotten to see all these revolutions but particularly with the digital one um, because everything has dematerialized um, and I think net energy there's a Michael Saylor he's the CEO of MicroStrategy and. And so in a lot of his like, podcast appearances, he has a very memorable, uh, I think it's an eight-part series on a podcast called What is Money? And he talks about the whole history. Um, it, it feels like reading a, a Jared Diamond book, like Guns, Germs, and Steel, where you're kind of going back and looking at the arc of technological progress and and kind of how money came into being, the problem it solved. and. But I mean, one of the the major things themes is that he talks about is how energy it wants to go to a lower state um, just because it's uh, you know more efficient you know in in the same way that uh, you know it's a, an ice cube will you know will melt you you goes through these phase transitions <clears throat> um, as it goes from a solid form to water to liquid to then to vapor. Um, and so it was just it was natural that our you know maps that our books that our play experiences were all going to demater dematerialize over time because that's the general yeah. you know trend of of you know things wanting to find that you know, lower energy state and um 
and books are, you know, it takes a lot of energy to, you know, to get all the atoms in place to, uh, you know, to have something with with uncoated pages and ink, you know, pressed into them and, you know, hardcover boards, you know, wrapped in, you know, black Italian cloth and debossed with, with massive bronze stamps that, you know, take a lot of energy to, you know, impress you know that shape and you know indent that shape into the cover and um and so it's a little i think there is some strain of it that i enjoy um that it, it does feel anachronistic in some way to be working in in the in the nice. print medium uh, but there's something ordered that is a nice counterpoint to the to the to that li- liquidity that liquid nature of the digital world to just have something that is going to retain its shape um you know like the website that you loved yesterday you know could be offline tomorrow the i re- when i was working at edge i remember feeling like gosh all these magazines are going to just end up in a landfill and and so only the the things that are going to last are the things that i'm writing on the website and those are going to stand the test of time because you know they they you know they're not as ephemeral as a as a physical magazine and and I was completely wrong. The uh, you know the website went offline you know a couple of years later, and now they're all four oh fours, and um, you know a few of them have been salvaged. Um, one of the essays I'd written about Dark Souls for the website, which had had gone offline, you had to basically use the Wayback Machine, like sort of Internet Archive, to dig up the text. But um, I took that and and sort of made some edits to it and put that in. You died, and so I was able to salvage that, but. Nice. It's the physical object that is actually the more enduring yes. uh, version of of that. It's in that it's in that codex, and and so it's it's sort of yeah. So it's a it's been an absolute delight. Well. I'm still trying to make it nice. you know make it financially sustainable, which is every uh, you know every business owner's. Uh, it's one of the fun problems to solve, but also one of the one of the dilemmas of yeah. Oh, absolutely, and 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 again, I think um, um, seeing the reaction when that edition of the book first came out, and, and having seen the book, I mean, you've you, you you've created something that will stand the test of time, which I think is such a wonderful thing to have done. Um, it's interesting hearing you talk about the almost like the visceral aspects of the production. I you know right down to things like the the feel of the cloth boards and the smell of the ink and that sort of stuff. Um, so for for a very long time now, um, it would be twenty years. Um, um, I I've done a bunch of different things. I've worked with startups, but fundamentally, um, everything that I've produced has one way or another been digital. Um, and very true of the startups that I work with at the moment, they all make digital mm-hmm. products. That's where everything is. But the one thing I did about six years ago is I spent a year helping run a thing called the Wellington Chocolate Factory, which is an artisan hipster chocolate factory um that makes um um very beautiful small bars this is gonna be my wife's favorite part of the podcast (laughs) oh exactly exactly and this is and this is the thing everyone like i i had no idea what i was getting into it was a wonderful very chaotic time but um it was it was super hipster in the best way where they were sourcing um bags of cocoa beans from original plantations around the world and they would show up on the floor of the factory and then you could literally trace them going around the room because it's a very small place into the grinders through the roasting through the tempering and coming out as chocolate and aside from all the other benefits of helping run a chocolate factory which are many 
um, I actually realized at the time, it was literally the first time in a very long time that I was contributing to the actual physical transformation of goods into something. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, um, you know, the smell of cloth boards and a hardcover book and the smell of roasting um, cocoa beans, probably a different experience, but very similar in that sense. And and, and there was just a, a visceral satisfaction to it that, that does not exist with digital goods, yeah. I would argue. There is no digital chocolate bar. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no digital book, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the senses are are something that we're trying to we're trying to figure out. Um, you know, like, I mean, I've even myself made jokes in the past about smell-o-vision and like, you know, <laughs> and these kinds yeah. of things like how do we, you know, what's the next kind of absurd thing that we're going to try to you know, make games more immersive? You know, you walk into a cave and, and like your computer... Pfft, like has this little vapor like vaporizer kind of <laughs> have some moss and mold or something you know as you kind of go into this cave and um oh. but yeah we're, we, we're missing those things i think that is where that need is you know being expressed as um, those those absolutely wonderful cinema experiments of the 50s and 60s where they actually did try a bunch of that stuff and i've always just thought like obviously it was probably absolutely ridiculous but just <laughs> You're sitting in your seat, and this and and this little waft of gas comes up, and you can you can smell the sunset, or it's amazing. I remember <laughs> uh, at Disney, uh, I think it was this was at Disneyland uh, so when I was much much younger, but they had uh, Captain EO, which was this Michael Jackson. Uh, I can't even remember what the it was like Michael Jackson in space kind of thing, but but they had like little in the cinema they did this kind of thing where they would have like a little mist of water like would spritz out like in one part when like something splashed in the in the film and you'd feel like a little mist of water on your face and it and then you had the 3d glasses on and so it was like one of these first like 3d spectaculars and Uh so it's funny like you know we're (laughs) even those experiments have have continued you know to pop up in different places and we still remember them so fondly. So, so in a in a in a, in a very um, roundabout way, Tune and Fairweather is essentially bringing back smell vision <laughs> to the world, where you get this wonderful thing, this book that you can hold and smell and open and obsess over and yes. leaf through and, and just have that sense. It's, we it's, spent it's so much time thinking about the kind of paper that <clears throat> that we would use in the book. I mean, there there are so many things you take for granted when you're sort of enjoying something that, like. You know, you watch a you watch a movie, and then it ends. And if it's a good movie, you're just relishing the experience. You're kind of in that afterglow. And then two hundred names scroll down the screen. <clears throat> and even for an auteur picture, you know, where you know we like we imagine that this you know, this one individual, just like we imagine that you know, in the case of Dark Souls, because that's what we've been talking about, Miyazaki. You know, he drew, he did all the art, and then he animated them, and then he came up with the story. And um, but there's so many minute details that contribute to an experience that feels completely effortless, that feels completely seamless. But it's it's really fun with Tuna Fairweather to get down into those, you know almost like into that mm-hmm. that movie inner space you feel <clears throat> feel like you're shrinking down and kind of going into uh those tiny minute little aspects of the book where 
you know, you you look at different paper stocks and, you know, they send you all these samples and you're like, okay, you, you feel them and they're very subtle differences and you're trying to figure out which one you want to go with. But uh, in the case of you died, we, we went with, um, we went with an, <clears throat> an uncoded paper stock. Uh, and there were a few reasons for doing that. Partially we wanted, you know, feel that was, very organic. Um, when you, if you get an art book, oftentimes they'll have quite glossy pages, and and that's mm. and that decision is made, um, you know, in hopes of the artwork really, like jumping off the page, having a very almost like trying to create an analog version of a backlit screen, where you have a shine to it, which you know catches the light, which you know, make can make the colors feel a, a little bit more vivid. However, what you lose with a glossy or coded page is you lose the smell of the ink because when the you know when they yeah, you know sure. coat the the paper with that you it just it seals in that that aroma. Um, so you don't get the smell of the type or the printing. And and then also it it feels it has a synthetic feeling to it where it almost has this plasticine kind of like has this glossy yeah, surface sure. and and so we wanted you died to, again to feel like a timeless document uh, and that was part of that desire to have the book function as a love letter. It is a cliche, like, you know, this is a love letter to such and such, but but it really was. It was my way of saying, um, I'm going to spend a year and a half of my life to make something beautiful uh, as an act of appreciation for a piece of art that that I loved and that was meaning meaningful yes. to me. And that's all, that's been a thread going through my entire career. The re, the album reviews like in my earliest part of my career when i was mostly doing music journalism it was those were the hardest reviews to write were the were the ones for the records that you know just felt life-changing the um yeah. i would just i would labor over those and re rewrite them and rewrite them and they i mean you get them as perfect as as you can before you finally have to file uh i love the i love the old parable of the you know, the woodworker they say like you know when you know when do you know when the piece is done and he said they're never done the customer just comes and takes it away from you at a certain point <laughs> and uh and Absolutely. i always felt that way i would just if if i didn't have that filing deadline that i'd just keep you know endlessly tweaking that you know for the rest of my life and Leonardo da Vinci did that. I think he was nice. working on, uh, uh, I can't, I, I don't think it was the Mona Lisa. I think it was a different painting of his that had been commissioned, but there's this great story in the Walter Isaacson biography of da Vinci, where it talks about a piece that had been commissioned uh, by this very wealthy aristocrat. Um, and he had been working on the painting for 18 years. <laughs> and he was doing he I mean, he was like a master of doing multiple layers i mean like you, you see in his sketchbooks that he would he was a master of anatomy of human anatomy and and bone structure and and 
he understood the sub you know subterranean elements he wasn't he felt like he was painting in 3d he was sort of he, he would paint yeah. you know the the form of the human being and then you know in layers and then paint it was like he was then painting the skin and you know over the top of it and painting the clothes and but yeah he he was working on that same painting for nearly two decades of of his life and and finally i think she she did uh, sort of make a threat that he had to he had to finally hand over the painting but but i love i love that again that's i mean that's an individual who's um obsessed obsessed with finding some kind of visual yeah, truth uh, yeah. to go back to what you were saying about that desire to to convey something true and real Absolutely, and I think as as we head to wrap, um, really towards wrapping up, one of the things that that I think I've heard during this whole conversation that we've both talked around is this idea of um, it's not possible to maintain an ironic distance from these obsessions and these things that we really care about and that drive us, and almost any time like you're using the example of being a journalist, I'm sure there were some reviews that were pretty easy to toss off because you probably didn't care that much about yeah. the album. But everything that gets close to us on these journeys, we, we obsess, we labor, we go down these rabbit holes, we, we get way too deep. And that's that to me is kind of the whole point. And if we're not doing that, then we're, we're just kind of really skimming along the surface of things, maintaining a ironic distance that's right. and avoiding the journey. And, and, and that's one of the things that I, I love so much about what I've seen about the, the whole idea of tune and fairweather it's it's clear that um, each of these books that you've made or that you're making they've stuck in you somehow they've stuck in your skull mm. and, and and that's just a wonderful thing it, it's it's been really interesting and useful to, to, to hear more of the context about this journey you've been on and how it's led you here so thank <laughs> you so much man it's been awesome absolutely absolutely <laughs> I, I love I love it. It has been an absolute joy. I just need to figure out how, t how to make more than you know one book a year because we're or two books a year uh, because we spend so much time. the The Kickstarter for our second book, The Epicureans, ended la at the end of October, last October, and it, the presses just started rolling uh, this past Friday, and so that's you know several nice. several months just from you know, kind of locking in that, that funding to, you know, having, like, I, you know, I read the book so many times. And again, it was just that same, making sure every detail was ex exactly right. Um, because I love the book so much. And, and I, it's our first work of fiction. And I want the author, yeah, nice. uh, I want the author to feel like this dream, this lucid dream that he had of this bizarre story of this, uh, you know, billionaire cannibal supper club, and and the way that it collides with this small town, um, this rural Alabamian kind of working class family, and uh, this Hansel and Gretel kind of tale of of them sort of setting their, um, you know, their greedy sort of gourmand eyes on these on these two young children and and you know feeling the peril that their lives are now in as as they're you know being unwittingly hunted and uh i just i want that author to um to hold that book and feel like the time of his life that he poured into it um yeah that it's a real that I want it to feel like a tribute. I feel like a tribute to to his effort and the art that he created, and and so like that's that's what we'll try to do with every single project. Whoever wrote it is is nice. going to 
wanted you know buried you know buried alongside them like some sort of treasure in a in a pharaoh's coffin that they're taking to the afterlife with them is like <laughs> I, this is what i spent a chunk of my my conscious life uh, doing and it feels worth it because it's yeah. uh, it's manifested in such a in such a beautiful form Ah, oh, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a it's a very high standard to meet and a and a and a very good task to to have set yourself. I think. Um, so, where can people find you and Tune in Fairweather, and where are you located um, outside of these physical? Books? Yeah. So, um, online, the the best place is uh, the Tune and Fairweather uh, Twitter page. That's uh, at Tune and Fair, and uh, cool. yeah, online. Uh, my website is jason-killingsworth.com. Uh, I'm trying to scale back my social media usage just to focus on focus on things Good. that are you know better for mental health and uh, and uh, you know general productivity. Uh, but I do have a, a page on Twitter at jkillingsworth, and the O in Killingsworth is a zero. Nice. And uh, yeah, and then the Tune of Fairweather website is tuneandfairweather.com and it's T-U-N-E-A-N-D-F-A-I-R-W-E-A-T-H-E-R, Tune and Fairweather. Uh, it's awesome. And I'll, I'll make sure all that is in the show notes. Um, brilliant. Thank you so much, sir. We'll, we'll end the podcast now and then we'll chat after hours in, in our fashion. But thank you so much, Jason. Thank you Kingsworth. so much for having me. Appreciate it. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.